few years back, 1973, Princeton Seminary, Darley and Batson, a company was hired to do some research. And so they decided that they were going to pick on seminary students and just find out what kind of people are we dealing with here. This was a rather interesting experiment that they were running in this research. What they did is they gathered all these theology students and put them uh, in a room and they told them you need to get ready to preach a message on the Good Samaritan. So they picked a text that everybody's very familiar with and they told them that you just need to cut across campus and go to the chapel and preach this message. And for some of them, they told them they're, you're, you're running late, you need to get over there. And so if you ever want to figure out like, so where do the pastors get the idea that they're a day late and a dollar short? We're trained that way, all right? And so uh, they were supposed to cut across campus and uh, what they didn't know is that part of the research is that they had hired an actor to actually be directly in the path in which they would cross, who would be coughing and be acting like he was in great pain. And so they had sent these students, and one by one they went, and they just kept doing this, to go and to preach this message. And the students, when they came, they saw this man who was suffering and in pain and coughing. Now, what percentage of the seminary students who are going to be preaching a message on the Good Samaritan, if you're familiar with that text, do you think stopped to help the individual? Okay, it was, it was 10%. 90% of these students going, they've been thinking about the Good Samaritan, they saw this person who was definitely in pain, and they would walk around them. Some of the seminary students actually walked over the individual. Like, I'd love to help, but I'm going to be preaching a message on the Good Samaritan, and they made their way. I don't know what they were preaching, if they thought about like what had happened, but only 10% of them stopped. And you're, you're thinking, just like me, like, that is all wrong. I don't care if you're a seminary student or what, but if you say that you're a Christian, we think that there should be some congruence between what you say you believe and how you live, right? That's how it works. But if there's no correlation to your lip service of faith and how you act, there could be a significant problem. And that is the problem that James addresses in his book. Do you remember what the theme of the book of James is? Do you remember? Oh, first service was so much better. Did you guys not get a copy? Anybody remember? Okay, maturity matters. Thank you very much. Okay, I'm feeling better. Okay, it's maturity matters, and that's what this book is all about. James chapter 1 talks about the mindset of a maturing faith in Christ. Beginning in chapter 2, James... This great spiritual leader in the early church is systematically addressing obstacles to a maturing faith in Christ. Last week, we saw in chapter 12, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, he addressed the issue of discrimination. That you and I, as followers of Christ and for those who are abiding in Jesus, we need to have a love that sees past labels. But beginning in verse 14... He addresses the next great obstacle to a maturing faith. And that is that we need to understand the nature of what a living, maturing faith really looks like. What really is the nature of saving faith? I want to know the answer to that. I'm not into games. certainly don't want to play church. I want reality. And I believe that many of you share the exact same passion. We don't want to play church. We don't want to go through religious gimmicks. We want reality. 
reality with Jesus, and we want to know what does it look like to have a living faith. And that's what James addresses. So you need to understand that your faith is only as good as the object in which it's placed. And the Bible makes it crystal clear that our faith is in God, the living God of Revelation. Specifically, the God who not only reveals himself in creation, but has been manifest through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's what we saw. Remember in chapter 2, verse 1, remember, just to recall your memory from last week. My brethren, do not hold your faith in who or what. What does chapter 2, verse 1 say? Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Our faith is in the Lord, speaking of the deity of Jesus, that he is fully God, he's the Almighty, Lord Jesus, his human name, which means Savior, because Jesus is fully God and fully man, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek word Christos, it's the word that is for Messiah, the Anointed One, the one promised in the Old Testament who would bear our sins in his body who would actually see his offspring, those, like Isaiah 53 says, those who believe in him. That is who our faith is in. It's in Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it can't be stressed too often, because some people think that it's in your good behavior or your work or things that you do that somehow merit you and earn you God's favor. But like the classic text, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, that faith is what? A gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. When we are in the presence of Jesus, when we pass from this life, we're all going to have the same story. We are miserable sinners saved by the grace of Jesus. We believe, truly believe, we exercise faith. It's not that we did great things or, man, God really needed me because or he, he, I deserve this or I earned this because of these things that I did. No, we're sinners saved by grace. But good works have a part of it because the very next verse, Ephesians 2.10, says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Created for good works, but we are saved by grace. So what does our faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, like James 2, 1 says, what does that really look like? Well, that's what's addressed beginning in chapter 2. Look at verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, hear the deeply pastoral tone of this, my family members in Christ, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Okay, so chapter 2, verse 14, it's EF. What use, what benefit, what profit is it For someone to say, and you see that word said? That is key to understanding this passage. What use is it if someone says, they they give verbal assent that they believe? What use is it to say that you have faith, 
but you have no works. Can that kind of faith save them? Can just giving lip service to uh, believe like, well, I, I believe that Jesus, yeah, he's God, he's man, yeah, he died on the cross, paid for sins, and you say it, and you even say that you believe it, but you truly don't trust in him, know him, love him. It's going through the motion, it's, it's rhetoric, but it's devoid of reality. Can that kind of faith save you? And part of the problem, the reason that this is one of the most hotly disputed passages in the Bible is because it, some people say this passage teaches that you are saved by works. And we're going to see that a little bit later on. But part of the problem gets going all the way back with the King James translation of the Bible. It literally, literally reads in verse 14, can that faith save him? But when they translated the King James Version, they forgot the little article in front of faith, and they just said, can faith save him? And so there's been this idea that uh, you, maybe, maybe works actually has a role in your salvation. But what he's, saying, he's addressing is, can that kind of faith where you just give intellectual assent, you may say it, but you don't truly believe, is that truly saving faith? Can you say the right words, but not really mean it from the heart? I want you to know that today, millions of people around the world will say things that are absolutely true about God, about Jesus, about salvation. The Apostles' Creed will be recited by millions of people today. And, and I know, I grew up in a tradition where we said it every week. But there is no reality for some of these people to it. They know the words, they say them, but they don't believe. I once was one of them. I know that you can do a math problem in your head and recite the Apostles' Creed at the same time, because I've done it. You just go through the motion and you say it. And that is the problem. That's what James is after. Can that kind of faith save you? You need to understand that lip service without life change is characteristic of lost people. And I don't care if you come from a Catholic tradition, an Anglican one, or some sort of version of Protestantism. If you're just going through the motions and just saying words, saying, well, yeah, I believe that, but it is devoid of reality. Truly trusting, knowing, living, and loving Jesus, this passage is to put you on alert. This passage is to, like, say to America, let's make sure you've got real faith. So what does it look like? Well, he actually tells them. A faith without works, that's a dead faith. And so he kind of gives this situation where he's comparing faith without works to like words of compassion without actually acts of compassion. So, you know, you got this brother or sister, they're without clothing and they're in need of daily food. And one of them says to you, and, and, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? So you got a person in need and you present, hey, listen. I am a compassionate person. And you express verbally your compassion. Be warm and be filled. But you don't actually act on it. You don't do anything that actually demonstrates that you're a compassionate person. But James is saying, you might want to really question if you're all that compassionate. If that's truly who you are. The same is true if you give lip service about believing in Jesus and I, I can recite the gospel. But you really don't believe. He says... What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, 
is dead, being by itself. If your faith doesn't somehow get expressed through your life, your faith in Jesus doesn't get manifested in some sort of tangible way, he says, it's dead, being by itself. Remember this, saving faith always finds ways to be expressed. The Reformers were somewhat famous for saying this, it is faith alone that saves, but saving faith is never alone. Saving faith is never alone. It seeks to be expressed. Jesus kind of put it this way. You will know them by their know? fruits. You see pears. You see apples. You see acorns. You can start identifying what kind of tree it is. Why? Because it manifests fruit. That is the nature of saving faith. Our being united with Jesus, Christ living within, has expression in our life in a wide variety of ways. Although it will never be perfect, it shows up in attitudes, fruit of the Spirit, how we treat people, our convictions, our behavior. Why? Because that's the nature of saving faith. You see, it's really interesting. In the book of Romans, when we went through the book of Romans, Paul was addressing the opposite problem. Paul was addressing people who were trusting in their good behavior and the ability to follow the law. And he's telling them, no, it's not your good works that save you. It is faith in Christ. James is dealing with the opposite problem that Paul addressed in Romans. James is dealing with the people that say, yeah, I believe, and I believe this about Jesus, and I believe this about God. But there was no reality to their faith. Lip service devoid of life change. Saving faith always finds ways to be expressed in the real world. I was uh, doing some reading and ran across this uh, story of a European queen several centuries ago. During the wintertime, she was going to go to the theater. She had her coach brought, her coachman, and they drove her to the theater. It's a terrible winter night, super cold. She goes in and, and watches this fictional tragedy. And apparently the queen was quite moved and brought to tears and kind of sobbed through most of it. When she finished uh, her time at the theater, she makes her way out to her coach. It is discovered that the coachman had actually frozen to death and died. What was surprising about this queen, who was so moved about the fictional tragedy, is she, had, she was completely unmoved that her coachman had died. Where she was in a situation where she was directly involved, if not directly responsible, but never moved. I bring this to your attention because we're living in fantasy land. We are more moved about fictional people on TV and various shows and movies than we are about reality. God is about reality in your life. He wants the life of Jesus being manifested in how we live. And so he says, if you've got faith, that actually has no words. You better question, it does lip service to Jesus that never leads to reality in your life. Is that really saving faith? You see, real faith is more than mental assent. And look what he says in verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is 
useless. But I notice in this verse 18, the word show is the key to understanding this. Someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. You show me. You show me. You reveal your faith without ever any substance to it. And he says, I'll show you how you reveal your faith. I will show you my faith by my works. And then he brings up, look at verse 19, which you might be rather surprised if you're just new to studying the Bible. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. This phrase, that God is one, is from the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5. The Jews recited this on a regular basis, that the Lord is one. In Hebrew, the word one is echad. It's a, it's a compound oneness. It's like used of like a plurality of grace. It speaks that God is one, but he is also triune in nature. There is a plurality to this oneness. And we know it to be God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And what Jesus is saying there, that's right. That is really good theology, that God is one. That's true. But you know what? The demons also believe and shudder. The demons, uh, angelic beings who are aligned with Satan. They're in rebellion to God. They've aligned themselves with Satan. And they also believe the exact same thing, that God is one. In fact, it's very possible that demons, these fallen angels, actually have a much better theology than many people. They know the one true God. They know that Jesus is the only way of salvation. They believe in a literal heaven. They believe in a literal hell. They know that it's only by faith alone that people can truly experience salvation, forgiveness, and transformation. They know all of those things. It's interesting, when Jesus had his public ministry, in a lot of such situations, he's actually casting out demons. Like, for instance, in Luke 4, verse 41, Jesus, during his ministry, is doing just that. And I want to read this verse. And it says this, Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, speaking of Jesus, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. It's like, I don't need demonic announcement for who I am. But they fully knew. They have good theology. They understand the Trinity. They understand the implications of salvation. They know that you're saved by faith alone. But here's the difference. They don't believe from the heart. Their allegiance doesn't lead to trust. They are not trusting in God. They are not assigning and trusting their eternal destiny to Him. They're in rebellion. But let me assure you, they got good theology. They know the answers, maybe even better than you. And that's what James is driving at here. Just because you can say the right things doesn't mean that you truly believe from the heart, that you're truly trusting in Christ. So he says, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Real faith is more than a mental assent to a system of facts. Real faith is relationship with Jesus, where you believe, you trust, you love, and you find him to be the source of strength, where the, literally the Spirit of God starts manifesting himself through your life. In Naperville, uh, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago, 
uh, years ago when they built their church, they kind of ran out of money, and they, even though they kind of had this bell tower, they didn't have enough money to put bells in it, okay? So the belfry was vacant, and they came up with some different ideas. Maybe we should put some banners in there, maybe put some crosses. But on their 25th anniversary, they decided they would take uh, an offering, and they would raise funds to finally put bells in the belfry. And they did. And these were some beautiful-looking bells, and they put them up there. But do you know today, those bells never ring. In fact, they've never rung. Uh, they look really nice, but actually, they're not made of metal or copper. They're made of resin, wax. And they have no clappers. They never utter a sound. There's no noise ordinance, or they're not, the neighbors are complaining, so they just, like, don't play hymns with the bells. No. They look real, and they look good, but they just don't ring true. And that's what James is driving at. You can't just have the semblance or just the right words. James is after reality, real faith, living faith, truly trusting, loving, believing, and really following Christ. And so he's going to use three illustrations in this passage to actually give us an illustration of what living faith really is like. Abraham, Rahab, and the human body and spirit. So let's look, first of all, at Abraham, the patriarch. Someone we're probably very familiar with, uh, many of James' readers, Jewish in background, many of them. Abraham. Got it. Oh, yeah. Know him. And so he says, look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? What? When he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. The people that actually say, theologically, works make me right with God, this is their key verse. Verse 24. You see it? You see that a man is not justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, what's going on here? Well, first of all, let's remember where we see this in context. Look what he's already said about faith and works. But let's talk about what's going on here in verse 21. You see that word justified was not Abraham our father, justified by works. The Greek word there is dikaiapo, okay? And it has two meanings. It was a word that we encountered many times when we went through the book of Romans. Its first meaning has the idea of acquittal, to declare someone right or treating that person as righteous. We are made right with God by virtue of faith. It is a declaration bestowed upon us. We are right with God. And that is that is one of the definitions. And you see it oftentimes in the book of Romans used that way. But this word, the same Greek word, dikaiao, also means this, to show to be right, to show or to exhibit or give evidence or proof of righteousness. That is, that you're righteous and that you manifest Righteousness. You manifest right relationship with God. And it's used in the New Testament like that on multiple occasions. And that is how it's being used here in verse 21. You see, was not Abraham our father justified by works? He wasn't made right by God with works, but because he was right with God, he manifested or gave proof 
that he was truly right with God. Now, for those of you who like to think deeply about Scripture, and you're like, man, I really want to make sure I understand this, why is that the case? Let me just give you several reasons why James cannot mean that Abraham was constituted righteous with God, or before God, by virtue of his own good works. Let me give you four reasons. One, in James chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, God made it clear that salvation was a gracious gift. It was his will, and he brought us forth. God brought us forth through the word of truth. Let me give you a second reason. In the middle of this disputed passage, one of the ways that we always understand scripture is we always do so in context. In the middle of this passage uh, regarding Abraham, there is the quote you see in verse 23. That is from Genesis 15, 6. This is where God credited righteousness to Abraham. You see that? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned, he was credited to him as righteousness. So in the very middle of this passage, he makes it clear it's by faith. He believed. Let me give you a, a third, though. You see how the, this incident about Isaac and the bringing up and the altar? Okay, this takes place in Genesis chapter 22. It's several years after the event of June, Genesis 15, where God declares Abraham righteous because he believed. There was this time where God called Abraham to go and make a sacrifice and bring your son. The thing that was missing was a lamb. And even Isaac brings it up like, hey, dad, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham tells him, God will provide. Even the servants, he says, listen, we're going to go up and worship and we'll come back. He tells them that. Hebrews 11 makes it a point to say, Abraham so believed God that even if his son should die, he could come back from the dead. God is that faithful. So the event that is referenced here is actually several years after the time that Abraham believed. Abraham merely manifested or demonstrated his faith. And finally, like we looked at in chapter 2, verse 1, our faith is in what? Or in specifically who? The glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's called the father of faith. Do you see that in verse uh, 21, Abraham, our father? He's the father of all those who truly believe. They take God at his word. And that faith, faith in the living God, gets manifested in actions. And that's what we see here. Like he says in verse 22, you see that faith, faith was working with his works. That word working with is the word we get the word synergism. They are working together. They're active together. And that's what is taking place. It's kind of like a tree. You know, a tree has leaves, and there's a process called photosynthesis that takes place in these leaves. We, we understand a lot about photosynthesis. We don't understand fully how it all works. We do know that the leaf uses the nutrients of the sap that is in the leaf. And when it uses those nutrients, there is a vacuum suction effect that causes the tree to send up more sap to the leaves because its photosynthesis is taking place. And that's what happens in the life of those who believe. Faith exists. We exercise faith. We believe. Works take place, whether it's showing love to a stranger or any acts of service, whatever it might be. There is then the draw for more faith. Works are simply a manifestation of those who really believe. It's kind of like our vision for our church. We are growing deep. 
and reaching out as we grow to know God and his word. As those who abide in Christ, you know what the effect is? The effect is that we reach out and we keep drawing strength from this relationship with Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse 23, Abraham is the fr friend of God. You see, a man is justified. He has shown that he is right with God by words, not just by saying that they have faith alone. That's one example. But let me give you an example now that James, I think, had to, in to intend shock value. Look at verse 25. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot? Whoop! That's a far cry from Abraham, father of faith. We got Abraham, the prostitute, also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So to kind of bring you up to speed here, uh, Rahab, which the Jewish people will be very familiar with, this is recorded in the book of Joshua, when before they actually took over the promised land, they sent some spies to Jericho. And these spies were trying to check it out. And they actually, it's recorded in the book of Joshua, you can read about it in chapter 2, they go and stay with this woman whose name is Rahab, and she either had been a prostitute or currently was one, we don't know specifically, and she hides them. Uh, the king in Jericho was aware that the, their spy in the land actually sends messengers to her she actually lies about it and says they left. You might want to check outside. They, they're escaping out of the gates. Go run after them. All the while, she is hiding them. So, what's going on here? Was Rahab made right, right with God by hiding these, these men, these messengers to receive them? Was that right? Well, let's talk about this for a minute. What James doesn't say, which would be familiar with the Jewish reader, is what's recorded in Joshua chapter 2. And I want to show it. We'll put it on the screen here. Look what, 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 look what Rahab says to the spies. And she said to the men, this is from Joshua 2, beginning verse 9, I know that the Lord, and she literally uses God's personal name, Yahweh, has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh, the Lord, dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and you did, when what you did to the two kings and the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, and you utterly destroyed. And then listen to verse 11. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord, Yahweh, your God, he is God of heaven, and he is above and earth beneath. You see, she may have not known much about God, but she knew all the pagan gods that they were worshiping in Jericho. They were not it. She knew his personal name, and she said, we know, I know, I believe he's the God of heaven and of earth. She didn't know hardly anything like the Jewish people did. She didn't have the law or anything, but she knew enough to believe in the one true God. And so Rahab is made right with God by virtue of faith, but that faith is expressed, expressed through work, a work of hiding them and kind of giving them cover. Now, Rahab, there's, this text isn't like, wow, so James is kind of commending her for her profession? Actually not. And furthermore, uh, she lied. I had one of our college kids, you know, want to talk more about this at the first service. Rahab lied. 
The Bible extols her for her faith, not for her fib. She came from a culture where lying was frequent. Uh, she wanted to protect them, maybe like Christians in uh, protecting Jews in Nazi Germany. And never actually comments one way or the other, it extols her for her faith. Rahab is really interesting. She shows up in Hebrews 11 as the Hall of Faith. And every, every entrance for every man and woman who demonstrates these great faith, it says, by faith, and then it states what they did. By faith, they believed, they exercised obedience. And that was true for Rahab. She believed, and that belief got translated into actions. And here's something that's rather fascinating. Rahab the harlot. Did you know that when Matthew records the genealogy of Jesus, that Rahab the harlot is in the genealogy of Jesus? She is the great-grandmother of King David. That's how God works. He's a God of grace, and he actually can take you no matter what your background and through true faith in him, bring you into his family. And, it, and it, your faith will be expressed, and that's what we see here. And you see, saving faith always finds ways to be expressed. And then finally, notice how it closes. Look at verse 26. He gives a third illustration. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. You see, when our souls leave our body, there, that, that's death. Body is dead. Soul alive. Where that soul alive has everything to do with who you are truly trusting, whether it's Jesus Christ or not. Heaven, hell, his presence, or eternity apart from him in hell. But what he's saying here, just like a body needs a soul to be alive, so your faith always will be manifested in works. You see, the reality of our faith is seen by the way that we live. And friends, that's how it works. Some of you remember this, but several years ago, uh, we had a, a little girl who came here uh, with her doll. Uh, as you, you may know, we're very involved with Angel Tree, where we provide gifts to children whose parents are incarcerated. And uh, we, what we do is we buy all these gifts, and then we try to we, we deliver them. And we look for opportunities to share them about the gift of Jesus and to share the gospel. We hold a party for a lot of these kids, and they come with their guardian or parent that's not incarcerated. We had this little girl, Shelby, come. She came She came with her guardian. Her mother was, had, was incarcerated, and she, want, she came to say thank you. And so we asked her. She'd like to thank everybody. So she, we brought her up on stage, and here's this little girl holding her doll. And for those of you who remember, I got down on one knee, and I was holding the microphone, and this is what she said. She wanted to know, could we do this again? Could, could we show love and demonstrate faith again? In just a very simple, childlike way. Friends, that's what God intends. That our faith gets manifested in action. We're trusting in Jesus. You see, that's what he intends. So what is it going to be for you this week? How is your faith being translated to action? At home, with your family, at school, on the job, in your neighborhood, in our church. Faith is meant to be expressed because the reality of faith is seen by the way that we live. I'd like to just kind of close by um, reading you uh, an excerpt written by Doug Nichols.
who was uh, serving with Operation Mobilization in India in 1967. Uh, while he was serving with this missionary organization, he came down with tuberculosis, and Doug, Doug Nichols was actually taken to a sanatorium in India in 1967. This can be a little rough here, okay? But I want you to understand what he is saying. He writes, he had to stay in a sanatorium for several months. I did not speak the language, but I tried to give Christian literature written in their language to the patients, doctors, and nurses. Everyone politely refused. He says that many weren't happy about a rich American, to them all Americans are rich, being in a free, government-run sanatorium. They didn't know that I was just as broke as they were. Well, the first few nights, I woke around 2 a.m., coughing. One morning during my coughing spell, I noticed one of the older and sicker patients across the aisle trying to get out of bed. He would sit up on the edge of the bed and try to stand, but in weakness would fall back into bed. I didn't understand what he was trying to do. He finally fell back into bed exhausted, and I heard him crying softly. And the next morning, I realized that the man, what the man had been trying to do. He had been trying to get up and walk to the bathroom. The stench in our ward was awful. Other patients yelled insults at the man. Angry nurses moved him roughly from side to side as they cleaned up the mess. One nurse even slapped him, and the old man curled into a ball and wept. Well, the next night, I again woke up coughing, and I noticed the man across the aisle sit up and again try to stand. Like the night before, he fell back whimpering. I don't like bad smell. And I didn't want to become involved, but I got out of bed and went over to him. And when I touched his shoulder, his eyes opened wide with fear, and I smiled. I put my arms under him, and I picked him up. He was very light due to old age and advanced TB. I carried him to the washroom, which was just a filthy small room with a hole in the floor. And I stood behind him with my arms under his armpits as he took care of himself. After he finished, I picked him up, and I carried him back to his bed. And as I laid him down, he kissed me on the cheek. He smiled, and he said something I couldn't understand. Well, the next morning, another patient woke me and handed me a steaming cup of tea. He motioned with his hands that he wanted a tract. And as the sun rose, other patients approached and indicated they also wanted the booklets I had tried to distribute before. Throughout the day, nurses, interns, and doctors asked for literature. Weeks later, an evangelist who spoke the language visited me, and as he talked to others, he, was, he discovered that several had put their trust in Christ as Savior as a result of reading the literature. What did it take to reach these people with the gospel? It wasn't help, the ability to speak their language, or persuasive talk. I simply took a trip to the bathroom. Friends, the reality of our faith is seen by the way that we live. Friends, that is living faith. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing passage. With utter clarity, you tell us that our relationship with you, our faith in Christ, is meant to be naturally supernaturally translated into actions. Lord, make it so. Continue the work you've started in our lives. For the person or the people that are here today, 
who've never trusted in Christ because they are trusting in their good behavior or church attendance, or frankly, they know they're on the wrong track, and you've got their full attention. Would they just pray with me now and say, God, I turn from myself and my sin. This morning, I believe in Jesus. Really believe. Trust him with my life and my eternity. God, would you lead me? And Lord, for all of us, would you be the Lord of our life? Would you continue to manifest your work in simple and profound ways, in the little acts and the great measures, to demonstrate and to manifest this love and this life we have in Jesus. And we pray in Christ's name.